If you've got a Bible, let's go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And I'm going to continue on in the series that Ken and I are working on called The Table. And uh, it's simply looking at the life and ministry of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, focusing in on the various meals that he shares during his time here on earth. So in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is constantly sharing meals, inviting people into relationship with himself, all different kinds of people. From sinners and tax collectors to Pharisees to his disciples. And so we're going to dive into the next meal this morning. And this one is a challenging one, but uh, a powerful passage. And uh, in 14 of the Gospel of Luke, at the beginning, we're told that on the Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Uh, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. That's kind of the setting. Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee, and the other Pharisees and teachers of the law are, are keeping a close eye on him. They're looking for something that he's going to say or do, a way that he's going to slip up where they can go after him and take him out. And so uh, we won't do this entire chapter, but I, I want to start... Um, down at verse 12, and uh, there's some conversations that happen before that, but in verse 12, Jesus turns to the host, and uh, this is what he says. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. We'll stop there for now. So Jesus is at the table with these Pharisees, teachers of the law, and he kind of looks around at the crowd that's there, and he turns to the host, this prominent Pharisee, and he says, um, next time you throw a party, instead of just inviting all the powerful and prominent and popular people, why don't you try inviting some people you normally wouldn't invite? the crippled, the lame, the blind. He says, why don't you expand your social circle a little bit and begin to include some of those who are usually excluded? And Jesus says, that's my kind of party. Okay? We'd like this to be a parable, but it's not. The next chunk that we're going to look at is a parable. But right here, Jesus is just shooting straight with this Pharisee and saying, it seems like everybody who you've invited to your house tonight, you have something to gain from them. There's some sort of connection or hookup that you're looking for. And so you've invited all these people who can repay you, who can hook you up. And Jesus says, next time when you throw a party, invite people who can't pay you back 
who are of really no social or professional value to you. Okay? Now, so Jesus is obviously using some hyperbole here, where he says, don't ever invite your friends or family over. Right? That would kind of contradict much of what the Bible teaches. And it's the same thing that he does later in this chapter, in verse 26, where he says, if anybody's going to follow me, he has to hate his parents. Okay? We know that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's simply saying in 26 that your love for me should be so great that your love for anyone else looks like hate in comparison. Okay? It's called hyperbole. So that's the same thing he does here. He's not literally saying you should never hang out with your friends or your family. But he's simply saying that instead of just inviting those who have something to give you, why don't you invite those that are typically excluded? It's really simple. It's really hard. But that's what he says. Jesus is teaching this Pharisee that rather than using people, he should learn to love them. Okay. So in verse 15 then, Somebody blurts out. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, for some reason, I picture this guy sort of as a drunken Ron Burgundy or something like that. He just kind of blurts this out because he doesn't know what else to say. And when I read this guy, I hear pure gush. Right? Like he has no idea what to do with all this crazy talk about throwing parties for the poor. And so he does what really any of us would do in that situation. He finds the first spiritual bus that comes along and he gets out of town, right? So he says something that sounds really deep and theological. He even says blessed, which is super deep, but he totally dismisses everything that Jesus is saying. Right, So he's kind of going, yeah, I'm not sure about all that hanging out with the homeless stuff, but I really like what you said about heaven there at the end. Like, isn't it great that everything's going to work out one day? So essentially, he starts speaking what we would call Christianese. Right? And he does it in order to avoid talking about the things that Jesus actually does care about. And unfortunately, this is pretty common. Not just in their day, but in ours as well. I see this all the time. As Christians, we're prone to take touchy or difficult subjects or things that Jesus says or that the Bible teaches that we don't understand. And rather than actually engaging in those conversations and prayerfully entering into the challenging parts of the faith, we simply jump on the first spiritual bus that comes along. And we have lazy minds. And so, it may be, in a, in a moment like ours, in culture and in history, that a conversation surrounding something like Ferguson or Eric Garner, we would say, man, why do we have to talk about that stuff in church? Why can't we just stick to the Bible? Well, what's the answer? 
Because it's the Bible itself that calls us as followers of Christ to engage in conversations related to oppression and poverty and the broken and corrupt systems in our world. It's Jesus himself who won't let his followers simply reduce everything to really deep and theological sounding words and actually says, I, I want to keep you in those conversations. So Jesus is sitting at this table talking about the treatment of real people who are actually suffering, and this guy won't be bothered with all that. So he spouts off some Sunday school cliche and tries to make everyone feel better. And so can I just say, I am so thankful to be part of a church that's not afraid to have hard conversations. I'm thankful to be part of a community where we can we can engage in those real, earthy talks about things like racial relations or the environment or poverty or injustice. It's so refreshing. And I guarantee you that as we do, we aren't all going to land on the same page all the time. We're not going to all come to the same conclusions about all the different issues But like I told you a few weeks ago, we don't have real Christian community until there's someone here who you wish wasn't. So it's an amazing opportunity, even though there is this seeming risk of becoming divided, Jesus doesn't, doesn't shy away from those hard conversations. He calls his followers to engage. And we can follow him into those places, knowing that as brothers and sisters in him, we can have real conversations and take real action in the real world and not fall into the trap of becoming what Johnny Cash called being so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. Okay, So that's what Ron Burgundy is trying to do here, right? He doesn't want to go there. Let's just talk about deep theological Bible stuff, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm here to call you into real life in the real world. This guy doesn't want to go there, so how does Jesus respond? He launches into this crazy, intense story that bumps everyone off the bus headed for the heavenly suburbs and drops them right back in the sketchiest part of town. So watch what he does here in verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still, another said, I just got married, so I can't come. We all know how that works, right? So the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house 
will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So Jesus responds to this super spiritual dinner guest by telling a parable. And sometimes when we approach parables, we kind of treat them like some sort of word puzzle where we have to try to figure out what every single person, person and place and thing represents. And sometimes that works well in helping us understand what Jesus is talking about. But usually that leads us into really weird places. And we come to conclusions that have nothing to do with what Jesus meant. And so Jesus' parables aren't so much these complex word puzzles about various outside subjects as they are icons of himself. Jesus' parables are icons of himself. They're stories that are meant to unveil for us the beauty and the mystery of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. And so this guy thinks he knows a thing or two about the kingdom of God and who gets to participate in it and who receives and experiences the blessings of God's kingdom. And so Jesus tells this parable to help explain or describe what God's kingdom is really like. So before we dive into the parable, let's talk for a moment about this thing called the kingdom of God. You really can't talk about Jesus without talking about the kingdom of God. Even just a quick read through the Gospels, and you'll see that this is the primary topic that Jesus is dealing with in all of his teaching and ministries. He's constantly trying to describe for his disciples and for the crowd what God's kingdom really is and what it's really like. He's constantly talking about it, the kingdom of God, or in Matthew, for Jewish readers, the kingdom of heaven, same thing. And so, what is the kingdom of God that Jesus is so amped up about and passionate about communicating and, and, and calling people to envision with him? I actually think that the clearest insight we have into this thing called the kingdom is that little chunk in the middle of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he says right in the middle, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he uses parallelism, saying the same thing in two different ways. And he says that God's kingdom is where God's will is done. It's where things are the way God wants them to be. Jesus says that's how it is in heaven, of course, where God rules and reigns in sovereignty and power and wisdom and love. In, in, the, in the realm of heaven, things are the way God wants them. And Jesus teaches his followers to pray and to seek that kingdom here and now, on earth as it is in heaven. That this place would become like his place. That God's rule and reign would not just be something that's happening way out in some other distant realm, but something that's touching down and come to us. 
And so the problem is lots of times when we as Christians talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we typically just picture this far off distant place, maybe somewhere we go after we die, this place called heaven. That's not actually what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about God's rule and reign over all he has created, the heavens and the earth. And for Jesus' first followers, this was probably just as confusing for them as it is for us. Because he shows up and he starts talking about the, the, the fact that God's kingdom has come near. That God's kingdom has broken into our world. That it's, it's, it's closer than you think. God's kingdom is among us. And he, he would even say, God's kingdom is within us. And these first fishermen are going, it looks pretty normal to me. How could Jesus say that God's kingdom had come into Galilee? Well, the answer is that Jesus had come into Galilee. That he himself is the human embodiment of God's kingdom. He is living as as an ambassador, as a representative, as the inaugurator of God's kingdom on earth. And so what we celebrate this time of year at Christmas is this beautiful, incredible, pivotal moment in, in the history of God's world. The moment where God himself comes to us, becomes one of us enters into the earth that he's created and, be, and launches this crazy kingdom movement. And he does so by sending the king, Jesus. And so oftentimes when Jesus speaks about the kingdom in various parables or whatever, he talks about it like, something, like it's something that's here, that's now, that's happening as we speak. But other times you'll notice that Jesus talks about the kingdom in the future tense, as if it were still a long ways out. Like at the Last Supper in Mark 22, Jesus says, it says, after taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so he said earlier, the kingdom of God is here, it's near, it's within you. And now he's saying, I'm not going to drink of this until it comes. And in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, Jesus compares the kingdom like to this bride who is preparing to meet her husband. And she's getting frustrated because it's taking so long. So which is it? Right? Most, most of you have thought about this before. Is the kingdom of God already here or is it still coming? And the answer is, both. Yes. It's already here, and it's not yet here. It has begun. The seeds have been planted. The king has come into our world, and he has started to launch this revolution to where one day things on earth would be as they are in heaven. But obviously, as we look around at our own lives and the world that we live in, it hasn't yet fully come. Things aren't yet the way God wants them to be. 
But it started. It started at Christmas. Yeah, it's a confusing idea that it's both already here and not yet. I like to think about it like a young woman who's pregnant with her first child, eight months into her pregnancy. Is she a mother? She is a mother. Is she a mother? Not quite. (laughs) She's already a mother, but not yet a mother at the same time. And Jesus explains, that's what the kingdom's like. That it's here, but it's also still coming. And at the end of the story, if you know how it goes, in Revelation 21 and 22, we get this picture of one day, King Jesus will return a second time, and he will finish what he started. He will establish God's rule and reign over the earth, over the entire universe. God's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he'll make everything new. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom, that's what he's talking about. God's sovereign rule and reign breaking into the world that we know. First through his first coming and ultimately through his second. So Jesus, in, in Luke 14 then, goes to this parable to try to help the Pharisees and teachers of the law around the table understand something about the economy of God's kingdom, about how it works, about what God's will looks like on earth as it is in heaven. And he pictures the kingdom of God as this great banquet that God is hosting. And he's invited all these people to come and to dine in his kingdom. Now remember, this whole series, the table is a symbol of relationship. To share a meal is to share of yourself. To invite someone to the table is to invite them to yourself. And so Jesus is first of all going, here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a banquet. It's like an incredible party. An incredible, delicious, shared meal where God is inviting people to come and to dine with him, to relate to him, to be in communion with him. Jesus goes, that's central to what I have in mind when it comes to the kingdom of God coming to earth, that people would be reconciled to the Father, to share relationship, to dine with him, to know him and be known by him. He says, it's like a great banquet. And God has invited all these people to come and to dine with him. And so all the arrangements have made, all the guests have been invited. And now it's time to get the party started. And one by one, the guests start giving excuses for why they can't make it. They start canceling their reservations. By the way, isn't it nice that this never happens in Bend, Oregon? Where everybody always follows through on their social commitments. Nobody ever backs out of anything, right? Is that true? <laughs> so here's their excuses. One says, I uh, just bought a field. I have to go look at it. Another says, I've got some oxen, so I've got to go try them. And the third's like, I've got to go on the honeymoon, right? So... At first, I read these as really lame excuses. Like, I have to go look at a field I just bought. 
Like, I just bought a TV and I have to go watch it, so I can't come, right? I actually think that these are pretty legit excuses, okay? Like, these would be life-changing events in any of these people's lives, right? Buying a, a property was a huge, huge deal. Oxen, obviously, getting married, huge deal. These are things that typically, that would probably give you a pass if you needed to cancel on a party, Right? I'm going to be on my honeymoon, so I probably can't make it to your poker night. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> so you would think that with these legit excuses, then the host would be like, all right, that's fine. But instead, what happens in Jesus' story? How does the host, the master, respond? Verse 21, he's angry. He's angry. He can't believe that these people he's invited are unwilling to rearrange their lives around his party. It sounds a little dramatic, right? It sounds like maybe the master's a little bit insecure. <laughs> that people have legit excuses, but he's still so ticked that they're not willing to rearrange their lives around him. Is he really that insecure? Is that the picture of God that Jesus is giving? His feelings are so hurt that we didn't come to his party? Here's the thing. If the kingdom of God is a great banquet, then who's the king? It's Jesus himself. This is not just some old party thrown by some old dude right? This is the event that all human history pivots upon. This is the biggest invitation that's ever been given to any person ever. This is the king, and he is not going to step aside he is not going to rearrange his life around your busy social calendar. He, as the king, rightfully expects that we would reorient our lives around him. It's not ridiculous. It's not insecure. It is righteous anger. For this king who's loving and gracious and compassionate, this king who is full of, of kindness and hope and joy and wants to share it with these people that he's created and they're saying, sorry, I've just got to get on with my normal life. They're unwilling to rearrange their lives around the invitation and the master gets mad. And so I would say it actually doesn't really matter where, whether these excuses are legit or lame. I don't really know. But it doesn't matter because the end result is the same. Whether they have really good excuses or really bad ones, they're missing out on the party. And so in our world, one person might say, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to be a Christian because that might mean I'd have to stop smoking pot. And someone else might say, I'm not sure I want to stay with the faith because I've been hurt so badly by other Christians and I found this whole other community of people that are way more loving. 
I would argue one of those excuses is a little bit lame. The other one's a little bit more legit. But it actually doesn't matter, does it? Because they're both turning down the invitation to come and find communion with God himself. Now, and this isn't just for non-Christians. We're not just talking about people who reject the invitation of the gospel. All of us pack around these excuses for why we can't live more deeply in Christ. Why we can't follow Jesus more passionately and authentically. All of us have these excuses, and some of them are really lame, and some of them are actually kind of legit. They're saying, I can't rearrange my life around this thing because I don't know what would happen. I don't know how all the pieces would land. Might be good excuses, might be bad, but in the end, we're turning down the invitation. And so the master, in his anger, goes and tells his servant, go out and find anybody else that will come then. Find the poor and the sick and the lame and the crippled and the blind. If the people who quote-unquote deserve to be there don't want to come, then just go out and scan the streets for whatever riffraff is willing to come. So he does it, and he starts getting people there, and the house still isn't full. And so the master says, then, then go out of town. Go out on the highways. Go out to the other cities around and, and get everybody here. Okay, really interesting. In his anger, this master is so passionate about getting people to the party. And we're not told much about why except for this. In verse 23, so that my house will be full. That's the master's motivation. That his house would be full. And he's going crazy pursuing this. Now, I don't know about you. If I were throwing a party and all the people who I wanted to come didn't come, I would rather have no one there than a bunch of people I don't like. Right? But Jesus is starting to show us something about the kingdom. Like, do you remember in, in Matthew where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. That's a kingdom invitation, right? And if I'm honest, I stand back and say, that actually sounds like a really lame party. <laughs> like, those aren't the people who I want to invite over to celebrate with. All you who are really depressed and stressed out and discouraged, like, hey, come on over. We'll do white elephants and drink punch. Like, <laughs> that's not my kind of party. I would say, come to me, all you who are funny and hilarious, and we'll sit around and have a good time. Come to me, all you who are rich and good-looking, and we'll sit around and be rich and good-looking, like, <laughs> or whatever. That's how we would think, like, that's who I want at my party, and if they can't come, then party's off. But the master insists on a full house. He insists on a full table. And if the first batch are too busy with normal life, then he says, the invitation is now open. And so the picture that we get of the kingdom of God in this story is that the great banquet 
has nothing to do with who deserves to be there or not. This is not about who's been good enough, who's been Christian enough, who's been devoted enough to earn an invitation to Christ's banquet. Because the people who on paper deserve to be there aren't there, and the ones who are are the ones who don't deserve to be there. So Jesus says in the kingdom, it has nothing to do with your record, morally, spiritually, anything else. And it has everything to do with God's determination to have a full house. To call any and all to himself. And to deal with us, not on the basis of what we deserve, but on the basis of what we need. What's that called? That's called grace. Sheer grace. God says, I don't, I'm not so worried about whether you deserve to be here or not. I want my table full. I want you here. And so the picture of grace in this parable isn't so much about what's fair or equitable or just. The picture of grace is actually a little bit reckless. It's a little bit crazy. Like God is acting like kind of crazy, right? I, get everybody here. I need my table full. And Jesus says, that's good news, isn't it? That's good news that God won't deal with us on the basis of what we deserve, but on the basis of what we need. That he invites us to his table in relationship with him, to a kingdom experience, not because we deserve to be there, but because he wants us. And so in the end, who is it that ends up at the party? It's those who have nowhere else to go. Because the first batch, they were busy with life. Buying fields and oxen, honeymooning. And the second batch, when the servant comes out, they don't have anything to lead, leave. They have no conflict about, ah, should I go to this incredible banquet or should I just kind of stay here on the street corner? Those who receive the invitation of the kingdom are those who have nowhere else to go. Those who have come to a place of acknowledging, I have no record of my own, no list of all my spiritual, moral accomplishments that I'm submitting at the door as my resume for entrance, but those that would simply acknowledge, I don't deserve to be here. I got an invitation, had nothing else going on, so here I am. There's this place in John 6 where all these people that had been following Jesus are now deserting him. His teaching is too hard. So they start taking off, and some of his disciples are around, and Jesus says, well, are you guys going to leave me too? And what do they say? We don't really have anywhere else to go. And Jesus loves it. <laughs> now, it's not very romantic, right? <laughs> Like, oh, you're just so great and amazing and we're giving up everything to follow you. They're like, we've got no other options. You're it. 
And that's what this parable is inviting us into. To see ourselves as those who have no other option. That Jesus isn't just one of the many things we could give our lives to, but to come to a place where we realize, I've got nothing else. I, I, I can't muster up anything. I can't bring anything to this, to this banquet. I'm simply showing up. And it feels really awkward to be here because I, I don't deserve it. And Jesus says, that's who I want. That's who's coming in. Those who are acknowledging that they've got nowhere else to go. And so, this is the picture that he gives us of the kingdom. It's an invitation that's extended to all of us. And it's like a banquet. And the problem is that many of us want to think of it as a potluck. That I can only show up as long as I bring something really good. And Jesus is saying, it's not a potluck. It's a banquet. Everything is provided. All the work has been done. All the preparations have been made. You don't need to bring anything. And it was hard for them to get. And imagine if I invited you to have dinner at the most expensive, fanciest, best restaurant in the world. It's going to be amazing. It's all paid for. Just come and eat with me. And you said, that sounds awesome. I'm going to go home and microwave some frozen burritos so I can bring something too. I'm going, no, you don't get it. It's not a lame college potluck. This is an amazing banquet. It's served. It's prepared. It's done. All you have to do is say yes and to come. And so Jesus is doing something really brilliant in this conversation. It's challenging and it confronts us. But he starts by talking to this group of winners who are having a hard time wrapping their minds around the fact that the kingdom of God is for losers. And at the end of the story, this party is full of losers, the exact kind of people the winners don't want to hang around with anyways. <laughs> and we get this picture that God's kingdom works really different than ours. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're told that Jesus Christ who was rich, became poor for our sake that we might become rich in him. So when we start talking about God's kingdom, God's heart, God's grace, Jesus doesn't just speak it, but he actually enters in to the brokenness, the sinfulness, the suffering, the poverty, the racial divisions, the injustice of the world we live in, and he brings it upon himself. And he says, come and dine with me. In a moment, we're going to close by singing what most of us would consider a Christmas carol called Joy to the World. What you may not know, and I hope this doesn't like grinch out your Christmas, it's not actually a Christmas carol. It was never intended to be. I think it's great to sing it at Christmas or any other time, but when Isaac Watts wrote it, inspired by Psalm 98, Joy to the World isn't about the first coming of Christ. It's about the second coming. 
Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. We sing it at Christmas to remind ourselves and each other that the kingdom has begun. It is upon us and it is coming. It is building. But ultimately, Christmas isn't the end of the story. It's not just a time to feel good about peace on earth when the reality is there's not peace on earth, that the kingdom has still to come in its fullness. But Jesus' first coming is an invitation to have hope and to be people who live as ambassadors of that coming kingdom here and now. And so we'll sing it as a song of celebration this morning, that the kingdom has come, but it is still coming. And one day, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom ultimately and forever. And all disease and racism and terrorism and poverty and injustice and pain and sickness and death will be dealt with once and for all. The earth will receive her king. That day is coming. That is our hope. And the invitation from Jesus here today, now, is will you live into that story? Will you live out that future reality here, now, today? Before we sing about earth receiving her king, will you receive your king? Will you come to him as those who have nowhere else to go, who have come to the end of their rope, who have nothing to bring to the party, but simply show up out of desperation and gratitude in response to his grace? So will you stand? Ben and the band will come and lead us, and we'll sing joy to the world together. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the kingdom that has come and is coming. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus the King. And though our hearts break and we long for the day where we will be made right, where things will be made right in the world, we, we long as people with true hope that you are who you've said you are, you're going to do what you've said you're going to do, and that we are invited to this party. So I pray that you would help each of us to find those places in our lives where we have been unwilling to reorient ourselves around you. The places where we are unwilling to receive your invitation, where normal life gets in the way. Lord Jesus, you're the best. You're all that our hearts long for. You're everything that we need. We trust you and we thank you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in us, at Antioch, in Bend, as in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.